Shitty iPhone is rolling. Woo! You all right? Yeah, you're all right. Basically, it was kind of like an up and over, and you kind of like traverse across this big drainage, and then you start skinning up, um, you know, this other slope to get access to a whole nother drainage behind it. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a tour of sorts where you where you're constantly moving to new destinations or whatever. Hey folks, and welcome to episode 29 of Dark Starts, your backcountry splitboarding podcast. This one is with Ryan Irvin, photographer, gardener, and splitboarder out of Washington State. Ryan breaks down for us how his buddy Chris got him started in splitboarding. So drop that bag of fertilizer and grab a hot cup of joe. And let's listen in with Ryan Irvin. Let's drop in with Ryan Irvin. Ryan, how's your day going? Oh man, it's going pretty good. Um, starting to get a little cold outside up here. We're getting uh, sad for winter. Nice. <laughs> hey Ryan, for the sake of everybody listening, where's up here? Yeah. I'm tucked on the eastern edge of the North Cascade Highway um, up in Washington State. So, beautiful country, beautiful country. <laughs> I just want to say thank you for taking the time to talk with us come on the show and share your love for snowboarding and splitboarding with us and then your knowledge of the backcountry as well. So yeah, man. Thank you. Super stoked to be here. Yeah, dude. So let's talk a little bit about what brought you into snowboarding. Like what's, uh, what gets Ryan jacked to go riding? Oh man. Um, like growing up, I like always wanted to go snowboarding, but unfortunately, it wasn't really something my family did. I, I grew up skateboarding. Um, nice. Finally, like kind of started snowboarding. Like my my dad took us once. I want to say like you know for Christmas or whatever when I was fifteen or so. But yeah, so it was like kind of one of those things that like I was always knew I was interested in, um, mm-hmm. but never got a chance to do. Um, until I moved up to Portland when I graduated and yeah, kind of just started riding at Timberline up on Mount Hood. Um, you know, nothing more than 10 times a year or something like that. And then, um, I actually ended up, uh, going to outdoor school at Mount Hood Community College, uh, like an outdoor leadership sort of program. And, so we did that, that year we logged like 105 days in the backcountry or something, you know, doing rock climbing, split boarding and yeah. long winter camps. Um, Wait, that was, that was of part of your schooling, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was like what? very, so I, well, before that I went to two years of film school um, and I got out of that. I did a internship with Portlandia and it wasn't. It, it was fun, but it wasn't quite like what I wanted to do. I didn't really like set life that much. Um, so I ended up going back to school for the outdoor rec. Cause I figured, you know, if I was going to do camera work, it'd be somewhere within the outdoor realm. Um, and yeah, so that kind of like lit the fire. We never, you know, most of the trips we were doing was more like, you know, tromping around on skins, like on the side of Mount St. Helens or something like, you know, with seven days worth of, you know, food on our backs. Um, oh. so it was a little like, that you know, more kind of soft skills base, you know, but it kind of lit the fire. And then from there I just, I was hooked and 
I've been doing everything I can to be on my slowboard as much as I can ever since. You know? So <laughs> I'm I'm just like freaking out over here because I wish, uh, man, I wish I had that one. Oh, you know what? I'm I'm gonna stop because I had some pretty rad shit going on when I was a kid though too, doing some stuff just on a different realm. You know, mine was all like canoeing, backcountry, lake to lake type of thing, and yeah, three weeks at a time. But um, dang, that's pretty seven, sick. Seven days of food. Yeah, it was kind of fun. Three weeks of food. You guys are fucked. Yeah, but you're in a canoe. You're paddling. One year we rigged up sails for our canoes. Man. Just little triangular sails. It was sick. It was sick. Sorry to detract from your story, but this it was sick because we had these sails and uh, yeah, it was pretty rad. The guy in the bow of the canoe, instead of sitting in the bow, he sat in the middle um, and he just held the line and kept the wind in the sail. And then I was the sternman. So I just laid back with my feet up and just kicked my paddle in the water and I would just rudder us around. It was pretty sick. And water trips are pretty nice. I, I've definitely done a bit of raft guiding and, you know, nice. r- r- riding around in rafts. I mean, it's just, it's crazy how much great food you can carry around. But yeah, unfortunately with like winter camping trips, it's not, not quite the case. You know, I remember just, I mean, when I was in school, like, so my first split board when I, when I was in school there, I had one of the original volet split decisions with mm. like the side cut in the center of the board. Um, so I got it for free from someone and I'm like 185 pounds and that thing was like a 156. Like it was a terrible board for me, but so tromp around with that thing, tromping around with like a 105 liter backpack, you know, filled to the brim and, wow. but just yeah. fired up, you know, um, <laughs> So yeah, it, it it was a good way to you know get out and kind of like learn a lot of um, you know a good foundation in terms of skills. And um, after I got done with that program, I ended up getting a job at a gear shop in Portland called Next Adventure. Um, it's nice. a pretty cool shop if you're ever if you're ever in Portland, check it out. But uh, one of my um, coworkers, his name's Chris Benelli. He was um, a split boarder that he like kind of grew up riding park and stuff and then blew his knee out. He was like super involved in the mammoth scene. Um, and had been in Portland for a couple of years starting to get into like splitboard mountaineering. Um, and I had already kind of, I was more of a rock climber, honestly. Um, okay, yeah. and you know, getting into splitboarding, but a pretty lousy snowboarder at that time. So it was kind of nice. Like we ended up really getting out and doing some really cool trips together just cause I kind of brought the ropes element to things and, you know, he was a really talented snowboarder. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of where I started to really sharpen my teeth and, you know, do some of the bigger, um, you know, ski mountaineering lines on the volcanoes around, you know, Oregon and Washington. And, um, yeah, like I said, I've been kind of hooked ever since. So I seen here in your profile on venture, you write for venture snowboards. So I was I seen here that you started snowboarding in 2010 and then got sponsored by 2011. Yeah, I mean, so with with Venture, um, it was kind of just one of those natural things. We carried Venture at that shop next oh, to Venture. Okay. Um, and it was kind of like our premier splitboard brand. You know, we had um, some kind of cheap. I mean, I guess back then, what it was like. I mean, the the cheaper manufacturers weren't even really doing splitboards. Like that was no. when it was like you know, prior and venture yep. and like Jones, you know, and like Karakorum had just come out. Cause I remember that was a yeah, huge 2010, deal. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So, and that was like back when, um, 
Mike Horn was still um, coming out with his magazine. Um, what's the name of that now? It's totally escaping me. Um, shit. But, or no, no, no. What was it? Um, Mike Horn. Chronicle. Chronicle. Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, so it was a billboard <clears throat> magazine that was around for a while. And I remember, like, you know, they had a, a roundup of literally every splitboard that was available in the market at that time. And it was yeah. like, you know, 28 shapes or 30 shapes, you know, and now we're, I mean, God knows where we're at now. So, um, yeah, pretty. So yeah, anyway, that's kind of how I, um, was familiar with venture and I was already on venture. Um, and then I had a friend that lived out in Silverton. Um, my buddy Courtney Walton, he writes for uh, the company as well. And he patrolled up at the mountain there. Um, and I went out and visited him once for their splitboard festival and, met Clem and Lisa and kind of hit it off. And, um, yeah, they've been helping me out ever since. I, I helped them out with photos for, you know, their web content. And, um, we've done a couple ads and, um, kind of like big, um, you know, billboards and stuff for trade shows. And, um, so yeah, they've always been important. Uh, no, for, for venture. Um, but, but they're located in Silverton. Right. So um, that was kind of the connection, you know, was the fact that my buddy Courtney worked for Silverton Mountain. who's was a, a um, guide there. So, And they're the only yeah. place that, well, they were, they were the only place that was actually hiring split board or s- snowboarders as guides. For we, uh, oh man, if you ever get a chance to go there, um, check it out. It's, it's pretty cool. But basically the way the mountains laid out, you know, it's one single lift. And then yeah. from there, you boot pack up to the uh, fall line you want, essentially. So, you know, a split border or a snowboarder, you don't even have to have a split board, just a solid board. But snowboard is just as valuable as a skier, really. Um, and the owners, um, Jen and Aaron, they're both snowboarders as well. So they, uh, they totally get it. Yeah, so. I listened to their podcast on uh, the Snowboard Project. And I, yeah, when it dropped, and let's do it. I'm texting Darren. I'm like, dude, we gotta fucking go there. I don't care what we gotta <laughs> yeah. fucking do. We're going there, dude. It's it's really fun. Unfortunately, it's changed a lot over the years. It yeah. used to be they used to be um, they used to have two. I want to say they had two weeks preseason, like unguided. Um, oh wow! You know, and then three weeks on the tail end of the season. But now they've kind of realized that you know holidays is like a really good time to sell guided you know like kind of sell more expensive packages so they were kind of shooting themselves in the foot by selling you know 50 dollar unguided tickets or whatever Um, don't they do 35 dollar heli flights yeah one you buy a season pass you get one heli flight for 35 bucks oh okay yeah so like what i'm kind of talking about they they still do the unguided season on the tail end of the season in in april or whatever Mm -hmm. so basically it's just no no rules at all you just come pay a lift ticket you don't have to get a guide or anything so they used to do that on the front end and the back end of the season um all right all right and so yeah that was kind of when when i had a you know went through there i I got hooked up by courtney for you know super cheap for a lift ticket and was just kind of let me just get your mind blown, you know? Um, but hmm. it, it is nice to be there with a guide because, you know, they work directly with the patrollers. Um, basically they, they kind of split their staff in half and half of them will be bombing stuff. Half of them will be guiding. So if you're getting guided, it's pretty nice because you get put in the right place, right time. Whereas the exactly. unguided, you know, is kind of a little bit of free for all, especially now that they're only doing the weeks on the tail end of the season. You know, it's, it's no secret anymore, unfortunately. But um, 
but nonetheless, there's, I mean, it's, it's an incredible place, man. Um, and the backcountry around there is really great too. Oh, it's, yeah. it's rowdy, you know, but, um, <laughs> springtime's a great time to be there, you know, cause you can kind of catch that tail end of the season and get the, the unguided, um, you know, weekend up at Silverton mountain and then get up, get up high. So. And Silverton seems to have this deal where they take you to Alaska also. They've got some deal where if, you, if well, the snow's not firing in Silverton, they'll take you to Alaska. Yeah, I forget. I I, I don't know whether – I think they only own one heli. Yeah. But they, they let it hang out in Silverton kind of sometimes. Like I, I don't know what the schedule's like or, yeah, whether it's condition yeah. dependent. Yeah. But it generally is up in Alaska for a lot of the spring. Yeah. So I want to say they kind of like keep it in Silverton for like, yeah. you know, December, maybe January, kind of the midwinter. And then they send it up that way. Um, they might even have two, honestly. Well, the one, but, but, yeah. The one was bought by Red Bull. Okay. Red Bull bought their first one because uh, Sean White was practicing for the Olympics up in the well, top. I don't. I don't <clears> recall <throat> that being the story exactly. No, what I understood. Well, that's it's, how that's how it ended up there, and that yeah. they were able to use it for the the cheap. Jumps, they blasted right? the first ever half. They blasted snow to get the first ever half pipe up in the glacier for Sean White. <laughs> oh, okay, <laughs> it still blows my mind away, man. Like that's just fucking gnarly. But yeah, they kind of have it made up in Alaska because they really don't have a home base, so they kind of just yeah. pop around to yeah. wherever the snow is. Yeah, that's what, um, that's what she talked about. Jen talked about in the episode with. Uh, yeah, I, I've so seen them actually up there before because I got some Silverton Mountain stickers on the back of my truck. And nice. Last time I was um, up in Alaska and I had driven, you know, I was driving around Anchorage and Silverton Mountain truck passed me and they were honking all You're fucking like, hyped what up. What the there. fuck? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> So, yeah, they're hanging out in a good wood at that time. Anyway. So you're telling me that, okay, so what I'm reading is you literally started snowboarding in 2010, and within a year, yeah. Venture was giving you free shit. Yeah, I mean. Fuck, dude. That well, doesn't happen. Come on. what You must have some skill set. Well, I mean, I, w- I was snowboarding a little bit before that, you know. Um, <laughs> but, but, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of just went off the deep end with things, you know. Um, obsessive compulsive is that what we call it yeah he just kind of um, shuts up yeah i guess so that's awesome but well you had a, you had a pretty big solid or sorry not big but you had a pretty solid background in backcountry touring and you know uh and a little bit of the mountaineering side too prior to snowboarding no yeah so um I I had like been rock climbing quite a bit um, for a couple of years before I really started getting splitboarding heavily and like I said Chris and I my my buddy there in Portland you know we we just kind of started we like would read mountaineering freedom in the hills you know and like kind of like learn these concepts and then we would just like go out and do them um, and looking back you know is definitely have some moments where you're like man we really like kind of squeak by there you know or like you know if I, if I had been behind us you know some other party i probably would have been like oh man look at these fucking jabronis or something like that but that was just kind of how we learned you know we just like like you know we would go out and just be like all right like well, let's go do the north face right gully of mount hood you know and it like we had never climbed ice before you know but here we are on like a big alpine ice route on the side of mount hood you know and that was just kind of how we learned and and like I said, it was kind of a good partnership because I brought some of those rope skills to the table. And when right. things got 
kind of sketchy on that end of things, you know, um, that was when I would step up and he kind of pushed my snowboarding abilities in terms of, um, you know, getting down things. And so, so yeah, it just kind of worked out and, you know, we, we had a couple of years that we were really crushing it. And, um, he would usually write, um, kind of like, um, trip reports and I would shoot all the photos. So, oh, okay, um, we nice. would put those on the next adventure website. And then he, he had a pretty good following on splitboard.com. Like back when that was actually a forum and not just kind of a dead website, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, um, that was kind of our, our gig. And, um, you know, back then the scene was really, really small and everyone kind of knew each other. And, um, those trip reports on that, on splitboard.com were really kind of how we, you know, shared, um, between each other and how kind of everyone, you know, that's why a lot of folks are like in the splitboard scene kind of know each other, even if we've never met, you know? Um, and I think a lot of that kind of has to do with those days. And it's how I met like a lot of my good friends now, like Zach Clanton, Zach Mills, um, you know, Kyle Miller was like super active on the forums back in the day. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was a really cool kind of vibrant time, you know? Um, but. <laughs> <clears throat> vibrant back then, but now it's, it's, it seems like the industry is heating up. It seems like splitboarding since COVID, since this whole shutdown reswitch of the world, People are really focusing on different things now. It seems like, you know, we're talking to a couple of manufacturers and they're all like, dude, we've had to ramp up our manufacturing of boards, of split boards because people are buying them out already. Yeah. <clears throat> so it, it's good, but it's bad. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, it's like, um, it's kind of one of those things. I mean, there's benefits and drawbacks to everything. You know, I think it's yeah. awesome that more and more, people are experiencing the backcountry. Um, I think it's good that the industry is kind of catching up and realizing that with all this new interest, you know, we got to kind of drive home the education side of things too, you know, you know, four or five years ago when videos would come out that had backcountry, you know, um, riding, um, being like kind of the main thing, you know, there really wasn't a lot of like, there was like the glamorization, but none of the, you know, real talk of the fact that like shit it takes south. years to get there, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. Like for me, like I've been watching snowboarding videos since 1990, 1989, 1990. And yeah, they didn't have, you'd see this guy in the backcountry like, oh fuck, that's fantastic. But you don't realize what's going on back there. Like you don't realize that how, yeah. many, how what has to be in place, that there's a guide, that there's, there's avalanche people. There's, you know, these video shoots don't just happen because they happen. There's got to be, and that's happening now more and more. Like we talked to John Buffery and we've talked to Craig Gordon and those two guys are just like epic when it comes to that stuff. So they make sure that the, those kind of sets become safe. And, yeah, you know, and, and I think what we're trying to do with this is that we're trying to show everybody that two dudes over the age of 40 can literally like start and go in the backcountry and learn. And what we're trying to, we're trying to portray with this, with this podcast is to have the ability to people to say, I don't know shit, but I want to go ride POW. I've ridden it on, you know, a slack country, but now let's, you know, let's get some mentors to get some things happening and, and get in the backcountry and, and learn from everybody else. Like learn why, <clears throat> what gets you so frothy, but what, and also what gets, you know, why do you want to be safe? What, what to watch for, what to look for. So, you know, we can even get into that now. What kind of what, 
what does Ryan do before a mission? Like, what do you do two, three days? You know, how far back do you check out areas? Are you like Mike Wigley told us, Michael Wigley told us, you know, he's always searching four or five locations to find out what's firing so he can just like always be in riding pow. Yeah. And I mean, I think a lot of that kind of depends on what zone you're in, you know. Um, Wiggles is really lucky that he's kind of got, you know, uh, up there in Canada, where is he now, Nelson or Revy, or regardless of where you're at, there in the Kootenays, you know, you really can't. It's such a good kickoff zone to go to five different distinct snowpacks, you know, really. Um, So so I think a a lot of that depends on where you're at. I've been fortunate enough to generally – so. I spent a lot of time in Oregon uh, for four or five years and then Salt Lake for the last kind of four or five springs. North, You know, all, all those areas have really good avalanche forecasting centers. So I think a huge part of, you know, where we're at today, especially for most split borders, um, you know, those, those uh, forecasting centers are so good um, yeah. that really they – they kind of drive my personal trip planning, you know? Um, and I feel like that's probably true for most. Um, yeah. We're so yeah, hearing it, also. yeah. You know, if you're, if you're living in, if you live in Colorado or, you know, Salt Lake area or the Northwest, you know, those, those centers are just so dialed. Um, so I, I think the biggest thing is just checking those and then, um, you know, figuring out what the problems could potentially be and then that way when you're out in the backcountry you know you're not going through the trouble of having to dig a full profile pit you're you're taking the things that they're warning you that may be out there and you're looking for those context clues while you're out you know um and kind of cross-referencing and like you know either confirming those things or um you know making sure that you are in maybe some sort of pocket where those things aren't present, you know? So Mm -hmm. I think for me personally, that's usually it. Um, But then again, I I like to do really long glacier trips out in Alaska, you know, and when you're camped out on a glacier for a month, you know, you don't really have that liberty. So, so, you know, I, I, I think that really does just kind of depend on, on where you're at, you know. Um, and when you're on a longer trip like that, you know, it's really more, you know, kind of stepping out a little bit further, a little bit further and kind of keeping your nose in the snow and seeing, you know, what, what what's working and what's not and trying to identify, you know, what, what your concerns are based on the, the snowpack that's kind of thrown at you. But, um, that's a lot harder to, to do, especially when you're first starting out. So it's, it's a lot harder and it takes some time away from your trip, but it's important to note that, uh, that you got to take those little nudges forward and not those big chunks, right. And those big bites. Cause that's what the, the kind of stuff that gets you into trouble. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, that that's true with with forecasts too, you know. I mean, you can't just read a forecast and just assume everything's all gravy and go ski the steepest line, you know. If you haven't been kind of out in that region, you know, already like that winter, you know, I think I think that's just a good habit to get into, you know. It's just kind of, yeah, a little bit at a time, you know. Yeah, um, those, those avalanche services or centers, if you will, 
um, so key, right? I mean, the work that they're doing is just Phenomenal. outrageous. And it's so, you know, we just recorded with Craig Gordon from the Utah Avi Center, the Avi Juan Kenobi of avalanche <laughs> forecasting. And, and just the guy is sick. I mean, it, it's insane what they got going on there. And that's the first taste of it that Chad and I have had. I mean, oh, yeah. You know, experience with the Canada Avalanche. Um, or Avalanche Canada and all that good stuff, but we but haven't yet. talked to those guys yet. Not yet, but Not yet. Uh, but pretty amazing, pretty amazing what those guys do, and so key to to your day, right? Well, yeah, and you know they're balancing a lot of things there too, especially you know a zone like Utah where it's like there's a lot of human factors that they kind of got to factor in. You know, like I mean, generally, one thing I noticed in the time I, I was there, it seemed like the forecasts were always a little more conservative on the weekends, you know, because they kind of could, you know, they know that there's going to be more users in that time. So kind of those little thing, those nuances, I feel like have got to be one of the trickiest things about that job, you know? Oh, um, entirely. And, and especially, you know, and, and not to get political border to border on this, but especially down in the States, I mean, Groups like that have to be really extra careful about what they say to the public and, and make sure that the disclaimers are out there and that the public understand that this is not the Bible. This is this is information for you to use to mold your day and what you're going to do and where you're going to go. For sure. And, and like you said, it's, it's you got to be real cautious with it because, I mean, some people, unfortunately, will see, you know, a green light day you know they they just take the forecast for you know 100 percent security that this ski line's ready to go or whatever you know um so yeah, it, yeah it's, it, it's it, just one piece of the puzzle you know um you really be gotta wind, be it could be windy that night it, things could change the temperature could be different things could be varied that could definitely change that snowpack and, and make for issues even though they just told you it's good to go <laughs> for sure and i mean that's again it, that kind of ties back into every region being a little different in right. terms of like what you should be planning because like nwac up in my zone you know northwest avalanche center they they actually come out with their forecast the night before and then if something major changes they'll put amendments in in the morning um but then uac you know in, in salt lake area um, they, they actually go out first thing in the morning, do field tests and then put out a report, you know, in the morning. So, um, and I want to say usually it comes out at, you know, six o'clock or something like that. So if you're doing an Alpine start at 4 a.m., you you know, you're start? not even getting a forecast. They're all the rage there in Salt Lake. You know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they have a hotline, you know, you can oh. call, um, but but nonetheless, you know, it, every zone is a little different in terms of what that should look like. But um, yeah. for me, it always starts with weather and, you know, checking the forecast. So Cool. Is now, let, can we talk a little bit about what your training background is on avalanche awareness and all that? Like, when did that yeah. start for you and and where is it today? Like, what level of understanding aside from your experience, right? Your first hand time in the background or in the back country. What, yeah. how did, how, so how did your avalanche training start for you and what technically, what level of certification have you completed to this point? So I, 
I've had up to like an Avi two. Um, so I, I got my Avi one in the, uh, the wilderness leadership program I was telling you all about. Um, and that was a good course for sure. We did it at Mount hood. The hard thing about avalanche, um, for her avalanche classes in the Northwest is so much of it's hypothetical, right? Cause you like dig down into a snowpack and you're like, all right, well, this is, you know, rock solid, but hypothetically, if you saw this, you know, or if you smack this 30 times, you know, right. yeah, like you, you, you do a column test and you know, you, you hit it 30 times and nothing happens a lot of the times, or it's a very distinct, um, rain crust or some sort of ice crust, you know, um, which, you know, you, you could tell right away when you dig down where something's going to fail. So, um, so it was, it was really great. You know, a lot of avalanche one, two is like, you know, um, more terrain management and reading that and, and, and route selection. And it's kind of changed over the years. Um, and I, I know they're kind of restructuring their, their, um, their, uh, framework i guess but um but yeah nonetheless so i I took that what was that 2011 um and then i took my avalanche two in colorado which is the polar opposite right you you dig down into a colorado (laughs) snowpack and you know the teacher is saying okay so this is a rounding facet on this layer and this is a faceting round on this layer and here's horror and you're just like oh my god like my, I can't even see this. It just looks wrong all the way down, you know? <laughs> um, so, so that was, that was really good. And I think it complemented, um, my first course really well. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of the gist of it for me. And, um, everything else has been kind of like learned in the back country. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not a huge snow science guy. Like I'm not, I'm not crazy about digging pits. I'm not like the guy that, you know, will post some trip report with um, my, you know, ECT results in it or anything like that. For me, um, you know, I've kind of moved towards more tests that are just easy to do on the go. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. That's not to say that I don't dig column tests and whatnot. It just seems like a lot of the education or like people are really, I don't know, I guess it's not a new thing. People have always kind of been, known this but spatial variance is just such a big thing in the in, w- with those tests you know so it's like it's kind of hard to dedicate the 30 minutes doing a full profile uh pit profile and then you know it it's hard to make a decision just off that one thing right oh entirely um, it's so dynamic pers- right i mean it's always from zone to zone and and angle to angle it's always changing right i think we lost did we lose you ryan he gone. We got uh, you back. <laughs> okay. Great. So yeah, where where we at? Um, you know, pit profiles they they or full 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 profile pits they they totally have their place. You know, um, I will generally do those if I'm going out onto a glacier camp and I'm totally blind in a new zone. Um, but that said, I prefer to kind of do more of like hasty hand pits, kind of pull probes, stuff like that that I can be taking lots of data, you know, as I'm skinning around without even stopping and taking my pack off. Um, so yeah, but I mean, a a lot of that kind of depends on whatever the danger is for the day too, you know? Um, 
So if wind slab is something that I know is out there, um, you know, a lot of that's going to be a visual thing or just like knowing, you know, knowing what direction, what aspect that you're on, because, you know, if you're paying attention to the weather, you should know relatively where those slabs are going to be. Um, so yeah, it, it kind of fluctuates based on, based on those, um, you know, whatever the danger is and, so, and what you're looking for. What are some of the things that you look for when you're going up? Give us a bit of a... Because um, <clears throat> remember, we, Darren and I, and quite a bit of the audience is still learning a lot of the functionality, a lot of yeah. the a lot of the terminology, kind of what to look for. So that's... So, give us a bit of a beginner's course yeah. <laughs> in a sense. Teach us. So Teach one, us. One thing... I always really liked, um, and again, it, it kind of depends on whatever avalanche forecasts or like whatever pro, um, organization is, is close to you. But one thing I really liked about NWAC is they have this amazing thing on their website called telemetry. So you can literally like look at a weather station on, you know, 6,000 foot on the south side of Mount Hood and you can see, you know, um, the temperature, the, the the wind speed, the direction, um, all on like an hour and an hour by hour basis. So, um, you know, when I was, when I was skiing a lot on Mount Hood and I was living in Portland, that was a tool that I always found really really useful because there a lot of times it storms kind of come in warm, you know, so like they could like kind of rain for a while or sometimes like it'll be amazing light density powder and then all of a sudden the wind picks up. Um, and, you know, those are all things you want to know before you drive an hour and a half up to the mountain, you know, mm -hmm, and find out sure. that the snow conditions are shitty or, you know, the objective that you kind of had in mind isn't necessarily safe anymore. So, um, that's, so that was something. Sorry, go ahead. That, I was just going to say this. So that's, I mean, they um, are they putting these little weather stations up or are they just kind of tagging into to ones that are already up there somewhere? And yeah, I'm not sure who, who maintains them. I imagine the Forest Service does. Um, or potentially folks from NWAC, but um, I want to say they're just existing weather stations. And you know, a lot of um, a lot of forecast centers have that. Like I know when I'm down in Southwest Colorado with my buddies in Silverton, um, you know the the CAIC in the San Juans totally has that same information. So. Um, and yeah, that's just called telemetry. And I've always found that to be really, really useful. Um, you know, and kind of like the most important things I feel like are, you know, um, wind speed and, uh, direction, obviously. And, and duration. When you're looking, uh, directions. No, I, I was, I was adding in oh, duration yeah, yeah. too. Duration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and a lot of times, you know, you can have a storm that's mostly coming in from one direction, and then all of a sudden it flips around for an hour or two at the tail end of the storm. And that's one of the really cool things about that telemetry data is you can totally see those patterns, you know. And they're relatively easy to read once you're used to looking at them because you can kind of see the patterns as you're looking down the table and, you know, um, keep an eye out for those, those little fluctuations, you know, because... Because, yeah, you, you could think all the wind slabs are going to be on one side and then all of a sudden things kind of switch and all of a sudden you have potential for cross-loading and, you know, the, the slope you were thinking about may not may not be as safe as you expected. So, 
Um, it is it is so crazy to get your perspective as as a guy who's in the backcountry lot because it's like there's so many and this year's gonna this season oh, yeah. this season is just gonna see a gigantic influx of I'm gonna use the term noobs. I mean, getting out there into the backcountry. I mean, you know, because resorts are gonna be a little tougher. You know, um, the um, the mechanized operators are probably gonna be, you know, either not operating or operating in limited capacity type of thing because of social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. So you're probably gonna. I'm assuming we are going to see way more people in the backcountry um, and way more uneducated people. If I, oh, I mean, for term. sure. And we, yeah, I mean, we already, we already saw it on the tail end of last winter. Mm-hmm, right. Um, well, this summer as well, what I'm hearing as well from other people. Yeah. I mean, cause you know, end of, end of March is kind of when a lot of the resorts started closing down and, you know, all of a sudden split board and AT gear sales, you know, shot through the roof and, you know, you have all these brand new split boarders trimming their skins at the trailhead, you know? <laughs> and, That's just yeah. insane to think about, man. And and then and then to take in that other factor of like knowledge is good, is great. But knowledge with experience is greater. Mm-hmm. And it and it just makes a more well educated peop uh, rider so and backcountry user. So yeah. it's it's one thing to to have the knowledge. It's one thing to have the knowledge and the experience. Um, when you're a noob, a brand new person out there, and you want to get out there and you want to get after it, the, the key is, for lack of a better term, the mentor, right? The the to it's funny. I was having this discussion the other day, and it's kind of related but kind of unrelated because it's not snowboarding and it's not backcountry. But I was out playing disc golf with a really good buddy of mine. Um, and I'll shout out to Drew Rogers, the guy who got me into splitboarding, by the way. Um, but anyways, Drew and I wrote, uh, you know, Drew texted me and he's like, Hey man, I'm going to go play some froth. And I'm like, yeah, I'm there. You know, I'll meet you. And he was at the skate park and he was going to ride his bike down. I was going to meet him up and we get there and there's this lone dude like waiting for us to be done on hole number one pad to tee off. And, and so we're like, Hey man, come play with us. And he's like, yeah, totally. So it turns out that he is like an ace at playing disc golf. So we played that round and Drew and I both shot a really good round. And then we were texting about it. And we were just like, man, it's so much better to play the game with somebody who's better than you because you learn so much more, right? And For sure. And so we were talking about that. And I was saying how that re- relates to everything I've ever experienced in life, which seems kind of... It, you know, when I think about it, it's like, it's kind of silly to say, but it's not really because I don't think people pay a lot of attention to that. I mean, I know I've experienced it myself. Well, geez, Drew, who's 20 years younger than me almost, but he's he's got so much more experience than me snowboarding. And so he's kind of my guru. He's my mentor when I'm in the backcountry and stuff riding. And and um, I've experienced that in other sports that I've played as well, that when I play or, or ride or, or do anything with somebody who has a lot more experience with me, I learn that so much better. So I hope people are listening and, and deciding that when they're going to buy all this gear and, you know, I know there's a lot of people out there who have a lot of money and it's a piece of cake for them to just whack it down and grab all that gear and then, but get out there, get the training and, and be humble and go out with the people who know more so you can learn and you can be safe. 
and enjoy well, yeah. this sport for a very long time. For sure, yeah. I mean, and it's hard because you know not everyone is going to have access to a mentor as well, you know, because maybe maybe you don't know anyone in the splitboard scene, and maybe it's like you and your homie that are like getting gear and want to get out and get splitboarding, you know, go splitboarding for the first time. Um, but I think one thing that's really important, especially with a lot of us. You know, there are some folks, like you said, that have the money and drop it. No, no questions asked, but a lot of us are kind of scraping by to get our first setup. But one thing to keep in mind is something you really need to budget for, you know, some sort of avalanche training, exactly. at least the gear, you know, and some people even, you know, will skimp on that and be like, Oh, I'll buy that later. You that know, that was me or they, <laughs> or they never, they never consider it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. they, they, it's not even a factor in their head. They're, they're like, Oh, for yeah. Sure. Oh, yeah. I'm told I have to have, you know, why well, I need a split board and then I need skins. Um, and then I need, you know, poles and a backpack. And oh, yeah, you know, I can just take some of my camping stuff. And yeah, totally. You can do all that. But then the training is so yeah. important. And, and you know what? Guilty is charged right here, brother. Because, you know, for sure. I, mean, I went out and bought all my excited. stuff. Yeah. Well, totally. And, <laughs> and I'm a geek when it comes to stuff. Like I, and my wife hates it because when it comes to buying gear, I like to have the best. I gotta have the best. I don't want to mm-hmm. cheap out and mm-hmm. buy the cheap stuff. I just want to buy the, I want the, I want to buy the right stuff. Yep. You know, yeah. that's going so to do the right. Buy it three times. Exactly. You know, <laughs> and, and so I get it all. And, and my kids laugh at me because I'm like, gearing up in the in the living room right <laughs> i'm like well, what are you doing i'm like i'm learning i'm learning how to transition i'm learning how to put my skins on i'm learning how to take them off i'm learning how to put my bindings on i'm learning how to take them off right i'm learning all that here now while it's comfortable so that when i get out it's a little more you know second nature type of thing you know because i don't want to be fumbling you know, I, and I come from a background that was a gear intensive sport that it was important to practice, 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 you know, so that everything ran smooth when you're in action type of thing. And so that's kind of my thing. But I, I you know, and I haven't experienced that yet with anybody in the backcountry where they don't know their stuff and they're fumbling over it. Uh, may, actually, maybe a little bit when I took my AVI course. Um, but uh, yeah, I was actually kind of surprised when I took my my AST1 uh, which is what we call the first level here. Um, yeah. When I took my AST1, uh, I was kind of surprised how many people in my course were renting gear. <laughs> and not because they had traveled from out of the area, because everybody in my course was either from the province or from the province next door and they drove in. So it was totally possible for them to bring their own gear, but it's simply because they didn't have their own gear. And to yeah, me, that I mean, doesn't that doesn't make sense. To me, it doesn't make sense. You know, like I understand. Yeah, I mean, it's a hard pill to swallow. But, you know, what we're talking about, I, you know, if, if that's all you can afford, maybe it is better, you know, to get the education and then, you know, go up a couple times, rent, whatever. Um, and, you know, that way, that way it's there. Um, but, yeah, it, it's hard, you know, especially since what we were kind of talking about earlier, a lot of folks kind of grew up you know, watching snowboard films or whatever, where people are skiing booters in the backcountry, whatever, they're just stomping around, no snowshoes, no splitboard, no nothing, no heavy gear, you know? And that's kind of a lot of, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of history in like not giving a shit, you know, kind of just like going out and like getting fresh pow and like not really paying attention, you know? So, 
Um, yeah, but luckily it, it, it's, it seems like it's coming around. And like I said, a lot of the production companies and stuff and, and, you know, the manufacturing companies too are, are, are really, you know, making sure that everyone knows that they, you know, the education is part of it as well. You know, just seeing just the small things like, you know, Jones or whatever, putting like the, uh, the, the checklist five red kind flags. Of on there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Putting red flags and, um, and same thing, you know, in his film series, you know, it, it seems like they're starting to become more of a narrative of um, education, you know, rather than just the glory of the backcountry without the explanation of, you know, when it takes to get there or whatever. So. You know, it's it's interesting that you that you reference Jeremy Jones and and all his videos because I think. I think, you know, I know for myself that was that was the thing that got me jacked on wanting to get into the backcountry and get a no swiftboard. Because I know I saw, you know, like I saw Jeremy Jones movie and I was just like, I need a splitboard. I need a splitboard. I need a splitboard. For sure. <laughs> like I was just like, And hey, I mean dude. it's kind of the gateway drug for a lot of folks. Absolutely. Know, like, you know, because um, he was kind of the figurehead that um you know popularized it all. So um as I'd say, you know, he's definitely not the only one doing it, but he's but he's the one that you know everyone grew up watching in videos. You know, yeah. big Alaskan lines, kind of getting dropped by helis, and then all of a sudden he's made this transition. So a lot of people are making that transition with him. You know, um, and I'm so glad you're talking he's got a about big that. weight on his shoulders. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you're talking about that because I just finished watching Purple Mountains, and oh yeah, and it, was good. and it was yeah, it was really, and I like. I loved his approach on that, you know, because I'm not going to lie. I've always been a bit of a denier, you know, and, um, but he it's shed some light on things and kind of changed my mind a little bit. That's for sure. Um, but I thought that video yeah. was great. Um, and I, and that, excuse me, um, that for me is an important message, I think, is that, not only the climate change thing, but the, the, to lessen your impact and to, yeah. to, to go foot powered into the mountains because there's so many benefits from it. You're obviously your carbon footprints way smaller to, to nil, except for your driving to the trailhead. Um, or use electric car or e-bike. Get to the trailhead. Yeah, like the 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 point one percent of riders who are maybe doing that, um, <laughs> right. and then the uh, but just the slowing down pace, right? Like the sitting back, the soaking in the environment, to looking around. Like in Purple Mountains, he rides with that one dude who's like the hard rock miner, and they go into his range. It was funny because I remember the dude in the video was like. Yeah, I don't understand why you called me, Jeremy. There's so many pro riders you could be out here riding with, but Jeremy Jones calls me to go riding with. And Jeremy's <laughs> like, well, this is your range, man. And frankly, you're the only splitboarder I know in the area. <laughs> but when they're out yeah. touring in his area, it's just like, even in the video, I was soaking in all the terrain and all the beauty around, right? And just like picking out the lines, like, look at that one right there. Look at that line right there. Like, it was amazing. It was, and that's, to me, that's one of the big things that stokes me about going into the backcountry. Now, I don't have anywhere near the experience as you, I, you know, uh, you know, I could count the number of tours I've done so far on two hands, but, uh, but every one of them, I've loved 
the pace and just the beauty of what's around me. And and I even love the whole, man, I'm getting into a whole different realm here. I know. I apologize, everybody. But I love the whole range of the day from the dark start in the morning and the frigid temperature to the warm up and then how the day ends. And then, you know, that cheers at the end. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, that was my rant. It's a very special <laughs> ritual, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, one thing I think to keep in mind for everyone that's like starting out, you know, it's, it's everyone, everyone starts somewhere, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. like, I'm, like I was saying earlier, you know, originally when, when I first got into snowboarding, I, I, I didn't really grow up snowboarding and I was a pretty lousy snowboarder. I mean, really, even when I was around in the Northwest kind of doing mountaineering stuff, I, I got down things and we did some cool things, but it really wasn't until like I started spending more time in Salt Lake and kind of riding at some ski resorts and, you know, riding more often, um, that I really started to progress and, um, and riding steeper stuff to, you know, a lot of great couloirs and just good snow to progress yourself out there. Um, but nonetheless, you know, I mean, everyone's got a, a, um, a journey that they have to take, you know, you're not going to start as, um, a professional right away you know and even even when you think you've like really got it made and you know really are starting to figure it out you still gotta remain really humble too because the more you learn the yeah. more you realize kind of the less you know too you yeah. know and you hear that a lot from avalanche professionals you know it's like it's it's a perplexing you're you're trying to figure out something that's really not it, it, it's dynamic you know every time um, yeah yeah, so the second that you get complacent and feel like you've, you know, kind of figured it all out, I mean, that's generally when bad things happen. So, um, yeah, you so got to stay. You got to stay humble. You have you have to stay humble. The the mountains require it, man. I mean, and, you know, in the backcountry does for sure. For sure. Hey, so so I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears here a little bit because um, you kind of yeah. referenced it a little bit, but uh, so you don't you're not just a, a, a backcountry splitboarder because one of the other things that you do while you're out there is a photographer. You're a photographer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like I kind of I, I guess what we were talking about earlier. I, I originally went to school for film production. I got to the end of that, kind of did my outdoor program, and I never really enjoyed the editing side of video production. Um, it just oh, I know what I, you mean. It's kind of like editing podcasts. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. The, choir, like the talking's buddy. the fun part, and then you know your eyes glazing over at 2 a.m., you know, staring at a screen. That's not quite as fun. I don't let them stay until 2 a.m. to do that. It's got to be done before midnight. That's right. (laughs) But 11.45, just like hitting the final final touches and like, yeah, dude, it's ready to publish. Go. Yeah. But yeah, I hear you. For sure. I hear you. Yep. But yeah, so so I slowly kind of started to, or or I got really interested in still photography and, um, and yeah, that's kind of been my squeeze. It's it's always been kind of a labor of love, more or less. It's kind of one of those things where I like always go touring with my camera. And, you know, sometimes I get out, sometimes I don't. I kind of like having it be non-committal like that, you know. I've had mm-hmm. a couple of really great breaks where, you know, um, I've gotten publicity and, you know, gotten some editorial work and published in different magazines and whatnot. But but yeah, for me, I, I kind of like just having it be something that's like, it, it's never really like my main gig, you know, um, it's kind of just a little bit of bonus money here and there and just fun, you know, 
Um, and I, I really enjoy the connections that it, it, it brings to the table, you know, and kind of the people I've been able to meet through, through that outlet. And, um, you know, hopefully the stoke that I was able to share to others, um, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's super fun. You know, I, th- I think the, the thing I enjoy the most about it is especially when you start to get into like the more steep, steep riding or like mountaineering sort of trips. I, I really enjoy like being a part of the, you know, um, team, you know, like the climbing team or like the, you know, it's like, it's kind of a funny role. Cause you're like on one side, you're, you're a quote unquote athlete, I guess. And then you're also like trying to document it as well. So it's kind of like a fun challenge where it's like, you're skiing the same lines a lot of times that you're photographing, you know? Um, so, so it's just kind of a fun place to find yourself, you know, to be shredding some 55 degree, you know, cooler with a camera tied to your chest, you know, and find the perfect spot where you're like, okay, I think I can shoot a photo without falling right now, you know? Um, <laughs> So we 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 have the fix for that for you because we yes, we do we have a our show sponsor is Pro Standard and the grill mount uh, Pro Standard creates this all these different GoPro mounts and they have this one GoPro mount called the grill mount and the idea is a grill mount you hold it in your mouth and uh, your GoPro stays attached to it now I know it's not a camera it's not uh, it's not your your digital SLR type of thing, but, uh, but you know, you can still get those POV shots and, and it works really well. There's, it's, it's pretty rad little piece of equipment. It's, it's pretty small, lightweight. It's really versatile. It's not just holding it in your mouth. You can use it as a little bit of a tripod slash bipod type of thing. And it's, uh, it's got heat moldable mouth pieces so that when you're holding it in your mouth, it's super comfortable to hold, uh, still allows you to, audibly activate your camera and everything it's pretty cool so uh pro standard would love to send you a grill mount to use in the backcountry sweet that sounds awesome the question is do you want a black or would you like a white one? <laughs> oh, probably black perfect Can't i will wrong. mark you down for a black one cool we'll get you set up with one of those so when you're uh when you're in the backcountry do you always carry a camera with you is it normal thing to throw in your pack yeah, generally. Um, and it's kind of been one of those things. Originally, I've been shooting Sony uh, camera bodies for a while. And originally, I had like a, a Nex 7. It was like a really small little camera they made. But I've slowly gotten kind of bulky and bro- bulkier. Right now, I have the A7R3, uh, which is, I guess they're coming out. I think they just came out with the R4 now, too. So it, it's not the cream of the crop anymore. But it's it's still mirrorless so it's it's relatively light by dslr standards but um but yeah it's got some heft to it you know and a bunch of different lenses and whatnot so that's generally the camera that i have with me there are times that i won't carry it if you know a mission is really really big and um but generally generally i do carry it around um i've got a really cool bag for it that that i love um it might be kind of hard to track down now. I know they don't make any more, but I'm sure there's some other brands that do make something like it. But I've got a, a Dekine bag that's it's like a chest bag that has kind of a mesh harness to it. Mm. So I can connect that, you know, behind my back and then put my backpack over the top of it. So I really like that system because, you know, I can take my backpack off and my camera's still on my chest. Um, so 
And the nice thing about that is, you know, it's, I'll drop into kind of a line and, um, have an idea, you know, if we're, if we come up the same line or whatever, I'll, I'll kind of know what zones I want to shoot in or whatever. So I can have a great time and be riding down and then have my camera super ready to go, you know, have it out within a minute and not have to take my backpack off. Um, another thing I really like about that system from a safety standard is like, you know, if my camera was in my backpack and I had to take my backpack off and pull my camera out and then, you know, I'm mid slope and somebody triggers something, all of a sudden my avalanche gear isn't on my body, you know, um, and that's never, never good, you know, not ideal whatsoever. Yeah. 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 So, but, but sometimes I will throw my camera into my backpack, you know, say, I got the shot that I knew I wanted. There's still two thirds of the line underneath me. You know, I can unbuckle that, toss it in my backpack. I usually carry a little bigger bag. I'm um, just kind of accommodate for that. Um, and then, you know, enjoy the rest of it to myself. Um, but the, the bag's pretty good. You know, it, it, the camera has a bit of weight of it. So if I'm really on something steep and kind of jump turning, it does a little flopping around, but not to the point that it, you know, really hindrances my, it doesn't mess up my running too much. So, um, so I got a question. <clears throat> yeah. Have you been involved, seen, or around an avalanche near miss? Yeah. I mean, um, and then you from, know, I, from, been, from that, what, what have you learned? So give us kind of the experience and what did you learn from that? Yeah. I mean, I've got a couple. Let's see. I mean, luckily, luckily I've, I've made it to this point without, you know, ever having to deal with the fatality of mm-hmm. a friend or anything, which right. is really, really fortunate. Um, sure. but it yeah. definitely like, you know, over the last couple of years, I've had a couple of close calls. I think one that, you know, I've, I've really reflected a lot on and still, you know, trying to learn more from it, honestly. Um, when I was in Chamonix um, two springs ago, um, I was there with my buddy Scott Yorko. He's a freelance journalist. Um, we were there kind of on a personal trip, but we ended up doing a couple stories while we were out there. Um, but nonetheless, we were out skiing one day um, with a British friend of ours that we had made that we were doing a lot of skiing with. And the um, Luke, our, our friend, he was the one that came up with the tour plan for the day. It seemed totally, um, you know, manageable. And um, we ended up, basically, it was kind of like an up and over. And you kind of like traverse across this big drainage. And then you start skinning up, um, you know, this other slope to get access to a whole other drainage behind it. So it's kind of a, you know, a, a tour of sorts where, you, where you're constantly moving to new destinations or whatever. But nonetheless, we were skinning up. Um, and there was definitely... I was setting the skin track. Um, as I was going up, I could tell the left side of this kind of like bowl feature that we we're in had a little bit of loading to it. Um, so it's kind of just, I would keep stepping left until I started to feel that a little bit and then cut out right. So it was definitely kind of favoring that right side. And um, it was kind of one of the situations where I thought that, you know, I could just kind of squeak through it. Um, we also had a guided group behind us as well um, that was kind of hot on our tail, um, which was kind of an interesting dynamic to the whole thing because, um, you know, I 
guides, I, I don't know. It's kind of one of those human factors where like, okay, well, if a guide is behind me, you know, our idea couldn't be that far off, right, in terms of safety. Right, um, in, the right, verification. in the right area. <laughs> but nonetheless, you know, that those are the human kind of dynamics that we've got to be careful to not fall into. Um, but anyway, I was up in front, and actually – Scott, who was second, was the one who ended up triggering the slide. So he had triggered it on one of those far left kick turns that I made, which I knew was kind of pushing the line. Um, he ended up going for a decent ride. He lost, he was on hard boots. Um, so he lost one of his half, you know, one of his skis because it was on a Dinafit toe piece and it, it popped off. Um, but it's kind of wild because we probing the whole area for a long time. We couldn't find the ski. We finally ended up just kind of giving up and booging. Um, and then a week later, um, the ski police, they, they have like, you know, police for, for skiing there. Um, they ended up calling him um, with his ski because they had discovered it because um, somebody else ended up dying in that exact same spot a week later. Um, and it was a guy who had been in Chamonix for 20 years or something like that. He was like a leading... He was also a leading, um, uh, what am I trying to say? He, he was a leading doctor in um, high-altitude sickness um, oh, kind wow. of science. So he like, really knew his shit, you know. Um, and that was, so that whole process was kind of interesting because, um, you know, you kind of have these, these, you know, you like wonder whether you were really in the right place. Um, and w- one thing you know, um, in Chamonix especially, but you see it in other zones. I, I noticed a lot in the time that I've spent in Salt Lake is, you know, when you're in these areas that really are, have higher, um, populations of ski tours, you know, where, where there kind of is a competitive edge, you know, um, you definitely notice the risk tolerance kind of being bent a little bit. Right. Um, you know, in, in Chamonix, it was, you could see a lot because you'd have these ski lines like what we were going up that is skied very, very often. So people kind of rely on them to be tested, you know, or like ski compacted or whatever. Right. Um, but you kind of lose track of the fact that it is the back country. You know, it's just not something you really want to rely on, you know. Um, and again, I, I kind of noticed it in Salt Lake sometimes too, where it was like, and, and it's hard because we're in this business of scarcity, right? Like powder is this finite resource or whatever. And you know, mm. you want to go out and get it. Well, so, get, get. Um, so in Salt Lake, you would notice a lot. Yeah, exactly. Um, in Salt Lake, I'd notice a lot, you know, you'd have, they have this big quintessential line, uh, the South face of Mount Superior. You drive past it on the way up to Alta. Um, it's beautiful. You know, it's 3000 foot South facing line. Um, but it's a massive slide slope. Um, and it's a pretty quick, easy skin to the top. I mean, not easy, but, um, you know, it's, it's accessible and, and people do it very, very fast and it's low key, you know? Um, so, you know, you see that slope getting opened up a day or two earlier than it really should sometimes, you know, just cause, there's kind of that idea of like, well, if I wasn't, if I'm not there, someone else would, you know, ski it. Um, 
So it's kind of interesting, and it's something that I've I've really tried to keep in check since then. Is just like, um, yeah, getting complacent with something because everyone else is kind of doing it, you know. Um, kind of curious. I I gotta ask because um, who controls when you say opening it up? Like who controls it? Is it is it national park land and? Oh no! Start opening it up. Like who's going to ski it first? You know. Oh, okay. Um, all right. All right. Because generally, you know, once it gets one track in it, then all of a sudden it turns into twenty, thirty, forty. You know. And everybody's um, like, "Do you see that, man? Let's go get it. Superior's open." It, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's just it, it's kind of interesting, right? Like, um, and it's something that people should be aware of in terms of like the area that they're skiing in. You know. Um, because if there are more users, especially in an area like Salt Lake, where you have these people that go out and, you know, they're super kind of like turbo athletes and they'll go out and ski 10,000 feet in a day. Right. So, you know, like stuff gets skied out pretty fast, especially like, you know, quintessential lines like that. Um, so, you know, everyone wants to get it first. Um, and Chamonix was very, very similar. Um, and it was something that, yeah, it's just like everyone from all over the world going there to ski steep lines, you know. So it's kind of a trip. You like, you know, get into the tram first thing in the morning and like, you know, you got people that are literally like waiting and trying to be the very last in the tram. So they're the closest to the door so they can shoot out and then r- full sprint to the line that they want. You know, so you're like literally racing people to like, you know, the top of like, an 8,000 foot line to that's the like back country. avalanche really? terrain. Yeah, exactly. You're dropping it blind, you know? Um, so that was a really interesting trip for me. Um, just cause like, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a fun game to play if you have the energy and the like, you know, willpower for, but it's, right. it's, it's kind of exhausting to like wake up every morning and like get on the tram and have to deal with that every day. You know, like when you leave the Valley, you kind of like breathe this like deep sigh of relief. Cause you're like, Oh man, I got out of it. Scott free, you know? Um, and in general, I mean, the Europeans tended to have just like a higher risk tolerance. It seemed like, so, you know, inevitably that kind of rubs off on you. So, so <laughs> in terms of that, um, experience, that was one thing I really, you know, I've tried to learn is like, I don't know, just to constantly be thinking critically, you know, like there was, there was a gut feeling inside myself that that slope, you know, wasn't sound. Um, and you know, I think one thing that I've seen in all of my close calls, um, is kind of that voice where you're like, or not the voice, but when you tell yourself that you can squeak through something, you know, that's that's generally the the cause of the problems or like the incidents that i've experienced or witnessed you know it's when it's like oh okay well we know there's this problem but we think it exists right there so we're gonna go right there you know (laughs) that that it seems like is kind of what's caused me the most trouble in that realm and it's something I i try to keep keep in check you know um because if it's if the if the if the threshold is that small you know like if you just you know you can't you can't decide you can't guarantee that you know exactly where that line is right um of what's unsafe and what's not um so yeah trying to you know when you see 
I don't know what I, I, I'm trying to, um, you know, keep, keep myself in check when I, when, when I see a red flag, accept it for what it is and not, don't try to squeak around it, you know? Absolutely. Because there are a lot of other options, you know? Um, hell yeah. Hell yeah, there are. Yeah. And it's, you know, and if you're, if you got crowds like what you experienced in Europe to deal with, That's you nuts. know, in an area like that, man, I mean, uh, I don't know. It's I, like watching the videos on Whistler where they all line up <clears throat> and ski patrol pulls the wire, the, the rope out and a hundred people go down the run and it's done. <laughs> that's like what you explained that's my that's my mind went it's like this is like i don't want to ride whistler for that yeah it's it's yeah. Sto- like skiers like yeah i'm stoked i'm gonna rip down this line chinese downhill yeah that's great and then what yeah. <laughs> that's right hey let's uh i, I want to kind of focus on your local terrain and where you yeah. ride at home can you can you tell us yeah. a little bit about that like is it are you mount hood is that your local or no, so Mount Hood was kind of like my, that was my first love, you know. Um, that's kind of where I, where I learned most of my stuff. But I'm actually up in Washington now. So um, I'm up like pretty much as far north as you can get. Well, not as far north as you can get, but pretty far north up into Washington. I, I live in a town called Twisp. Um, it is on the eastern edge of the North Cascade Highway. So this is a new zone for me. I just moved up here in May. Before that, I was in Leavenworth, which is on Stevens Pass. Um, okay. For the last mm-hmm. two years. So that's kind of been my forte for the last, you know, little bit or the last couple of winters was, was playing, playing down in, uh, in Leavenworth and kind of, um, you know, up in the Glacier Peak Wilderness and, um, there's a lot of really, really great stuff right off the highway on Stevens Pass and, so that's kind of the zone that I, I've been learning over the last couple of years. And I'm super excited to learn uh, my new spot up here. It's, it's going to be a little bit different. So um, it's mostly like sled access stuff up here. So the, the North Cascade Highway actually closes in the winter. Um, so like to get to my town from Seattle in the summer, it's you know three-hour drive. In the winter, it's a six-hour drive because you have to drive all the way down through Stevens over to Wenatchee north and then west again um so it's kind of great we're um we're in a little snow globe up here um and they usually groom the highway there um so you can get up it pretty fast with the sled and get access to some phenomenal skiing um so yeah that's going to be kind of my winter this year i think i'm really gonna um get to know the backyard and just kind of um yeah, see what kind of terrain it has to offer. Um, not to say that I won't be going on any other trips. Hopefully the Canadian border opens because I'm tucked up pretty close to the Kootenays. Um, I want to say here I'm four and a half hours or so from Rebbe. Um, yeah, and went there yeah, for the yeah. first time last winter yeah. um, or spring really. And, and I was, I was stoked. I, I've been kind of doing the pilgrimage to Alaska for, I did it for five springs in a row and that's always been a zone that I've really, really loved. And just the, the people and the, mostly, you know, the riding. Um, but after going to Revy and kind of seeing Rogers pass, um, we didn't even really have any good stability when we were there. We were mostly just storm riding, but just looking around, I was like, Oh wait, why, you know, Alaska is great and all, but you know, you either have to fly and then deal with a rental car or like, 
drive, you know, and that's days and thousands upon thousands of miles on your car. I'm like, man, I could just come up here, you know, drive four and a half hours, <laughs> dirt bag out of my truck for a couple of weeks and, you know, ski a lot of pretty comparable stuff in terms of, you know, steepness and, um, snow quality. So, yeah, you, you uh, are, you are close. Um, I mean, it's, it's amazing. The Coonies is an amazing area and there's tons just so much. There's so much that's out there. I mean, I can't profess to know it all personally, but but it has a, a super great reputation, of course, for, for what's up in that area. That's for sure. For sure. And I mean... And everything you know, you from the so border up even. Like, sorry, sorry yeah. to cut you in, but... Oh, no, no. Okay, yeah, but, but yeah, like once you, you know, once you cross the border, like if you go up into even like Roslyn... You know, and if you want to hit some like resort stuff like Red Mountain and some good stuff like that, and then just start driving up Highway 3 and then work your way up to Revy that way. I mean, there's so much good stuff around that area. For sure. And like what we were kind of talking about earlier with um, Mr. Or I, I can't remember whether it was on or off the air, but uh, Wiggles, Pal mm. Slash and Wiggly, he's, oh, yeah. he's up in that zone. And just having like, I mean, you're you're just in such a good kickoff spot you know um because yeah i mean you can go to kootenai pass or you can go to golden you know or rogers pass or like be down in whitewater nelson area i mean it's just endless you know um, it is and it is. each of those zones are very different in terms of their snow pack and their terrain too you they know? are um that's crazy. So that, that's pretty special, you know, and you, you could go out to the Rockies and get amazing ice climbing you know, all year long. I mean, not all year long, but for a very, very long sustained season. And yeah, so it's a special place. Um, so I'm, I'm stoked that I got a chance to experience that. I, I, I went on a little trip up there right before I ended up getting COVID in March. Um, so I was up there for a two week trip and really like blew my mind because I had kind of like driven through BC fast on the way to Alaska. Oh, yeah. never gotten a chance to really um do any snowboarding there so um hopefully you know things open up and i get a chance to bop up there but um but yeah we'll see i might end up going to utah a little bit this winter too um i always like going to southwest colorado especially in the spring um go visit the folks over at venture you know hang out ride some big old stuff in the um in that neck of the woods so we'll, we'll see but i'm pretty stoked to get to know the backyard it's so beautiful like you have you know in my eyes you have like a like an ideal part of the country to tour around in and and all your like-minded folks you know um you know manufacturer wise and friend wise and everything between where you are and where ventures is located um, and then north of there, it's pretty mm-hmm. wicked and mm-hmm. you get to ride a lot of great terrain. So speaking of which, when you're riding and we mentioned ventures, snowboards, I mean, you, you obviously you ride venture boards. Um, mm-hmm. uh, what, wh- when it comes to your other gear, what else are you riding? Like what, what are your bindings and boots and of choice and all that good stuff? Yes. So, um, Usually, like you said, the Venture boards, I really love their Storm. Um, it's an awesome deck that kind of super stiff tip to tail, but it has a really deep side cut. So it's really quick edge to edge still. And that's just kind of my spirit board. Love it. Um, so that's kind of my go-to. And then in terms of bindings, um, 
I ride hard boots and soft boots. So the hard boot kit is, uh, I've got Dinafit TLT sixes, um, with a bunch of mods on it that I've done myself for that. I was on TLT fives, um, with the phantom bindings, which I love. Um, so that's kind of my hard boot kit. Um, and then in terms of soft boots, um, you know, I've kind of bounced all over the place with soft boots. It's so hard to get a boot that rides well, that lasts. I was on the Burton warranty train, warranty train for a long time. Oh yeah. Um, just <laughs> recycling my, um, nice. my, uh, what do they call the, the high, their high end quote unquote boot. Uh, the the Ion? Not the Ion, not the Taurus, but the, the, the other driver. one. The yeah, fit? the Driver X. Driver X. So I was on that train for a long time because, you know, it, I mean, they're great out of the box, but then you put 25 days on them and they start falling apart, you know. The liner so I kind of did a the, hole in it. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They just start exploding. Um, but their warranty program is really good. So I kind of took advantage of that for a couple of years. And, um, they, they were great. But, uh, you know, the brand that I found that really kind of has like, um, made a difference for me is uh, the Solomons, honestly. Like, I was on Malamutes for a long time. Um, <laughs> it's a pretty, pretty great boot, just a rugged outsole, um, low profile. It accepts my universal cramp on uh, BD, or no, sorry, uh, I've got Petzl Irvis's, um, a universal you know, strap on cramp on and they, they fit really well in there. Um, so that was kind of my main go-to for the last couple of years. And then I ended up with a pair of, oh man, what do they call them? It's their boot that has like the full walk mode. Um, they're called the, Oh man, we were just talking about those recently. I'm not wholly familiar with the Solomon boot line, but, um, yeah, hold on. I forget the name honestly, but it, Chad, it's a pretty up. sweet oh, boot. I ended up getting it from, uh, one of the backcountry magazine tests actually. And, um, they held up pretty well. They're pretty spendy. Um, and <laughs> I love that term. So I don't know if I would have bought them, you know, and they, they didn't last quite as long as I'd like, but th- that's the hardest thing, right? Is like, you have like that boot and then like, you know, the stuff that Jones has been doing and like mm-hmm. the fit wells and all these kind of answers that like kind of have some of the components that the hard boots have, but, Hard yeah, boots no. just do it better, you know. Um, I, I've, but, yeah. I've played around with those Jones boots, and um, if you like cement bricks in your feet, <laughs> um, well, I was going to say know, it's a lot of boot. It's a lot of there's a lot of stuff sure. going on there with it's the gator heavy, and the zipper and, and the bow. Well, and, and to be fair, every year they come out with a new iteration, and it has mm-hmm. gotten lighter, and the footprint has gotten smaller. But still, like even the newest, it, it's it's night and day. Like I mean, with my hard boots, my footprint is so small. They they just feel like these you know little yeah. mountain slippers, right. um, which is really important when you're like you know putting crampons on and and walking up a sketchy ridge line. You know. Um, Wait a minute! Did you say they of, felt like mountain slippers? Mountain <laughs> slippers. Yeah. That's what I like to call them. You know, there's kind of this misconception that like the hard boots are uncomfortable. You know, it's a lot of, everyone always kind of says like, Oh yeah, that's what, you know, but they are, I aren't snowboard they? cause I like the soft boots. Honestly, I mean, I, uh, if I'm out for like a full day in my TLTs or my, you know, Solomon's or whatever, usually like I feel a little better in the, the TLTs, honestly. Um, is it the Solomon I've Trek? I've got a pretty slender foot. 
what's that? Is it the Solomon Trek? Trek? Yeah, that's that that that's the yeah, one. Yeah, the, the S lab boot. Yeah, slab boot. Yeah. Yeah. But but nonetheless, you know, with with the soft boots, they're pretty. You know, when you first put them on, they they are like very comfortable soft materials. But I find my toes usually end up kind of getting cramped and like tired by the end of the day. With okay. the hard boots, it's, it's really not the case. And I don't know whether that's. I think part of it is because the walk mode is so much better. You know, mm. your your heel isn't slipping around as much because that's another thing with the oh, soft boots. I notice like my heels start to get really tired. Always, you know, always. Um, and that's because they're just kind of moving all around. You know, like yeah. I mean, even a a boot with a walk mode. You know, like you look at the the S Lab, the Trex, or whatever, um, and you know, it's got a walk mode, but it's it it's just not it's not the same. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know whether it's just the fact that the, you know, plastic is going to um, be a little more, you know, have better glide to it or, or, or what, but, but yeah, I, I mean, my TLTs fit me great. I know other folks that that's not the case. I've got a pretty slender foot too. So I've always, you know, fit into those boots. Well, um, you know, with certain feet, like you're going to have to do a lot more boot work with, uh, hard boot because you're going to notice where that shell doesn't fit your foot shape you know whereas with the soft boot if it's not quite right you know the liner just ends up squishing out a little more in there and everything's gravy you know it's got some yield um, to it yeah. yeah exactly exactly yeah it's supple you know um but so supple. It, it's but supple. that said you know <laughs> if you get like a hard boot that doesn't fit you i mean there's amazing boot fitters everywhere you know yeah, right 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 exactly yeah. my my TLTs, you know, my TLT fives, even they're still usable. I still have them, you know, and I mean, Lord knows how many days I have on them. Um, but you know, with, with soft boots, it's, it's usually a one year turnaround for me, you know, if not less than that, you know, I remember getting one pair of those, um, uh, driver X's. I want to say I got them in March and I, I couldn't even ride them the next winter, you know? Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Given, you know, spring is hard on gear, I've had the same thing kind of happen uh, with skins, yes. you know, where it's like you put a fresh set of skins on, you know, in March, and then after touring around a bunch of fucking pine needles and stuff, they're they're shot, you know, but nonetheless. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of my kit. In terms of, like, skins, I, I really like mohair skins. Over time, I've kind of, like, just gotten used to that extra glide so i use the glide lights from black diamond um i just buy the ski attachment loop ones and just mount them myself kind of you know angled or whatever i know they make it for a split board now um but the hardware is kind of bulky i i don't know that's just kind of how i've always done it and then you know bought like the little spark tail clips or whatever um so yeah, that's kind of my kit and, you know, depending on the day, like generally winter I ride my soft boots and then spring I ride my hard boots. But, you know, if I'm going on a big old mega day in the middle of winter, I usually will reach for that hard boot kit. Um, but, you know, if it's something playful and there's lots of pillows and stuff, I, I, I do prefer the soft boots for yeah. stuff like that. So. What You're speaking exactly the way my mindset's been working when I, the more we learn about hard boots, soft boots. You, you just, you said it. That's, and you know, we're talking to John from Phantom and he totally tried to, you know, veer us in the direction. But yeah, that's kind of where my mind's at too. I, I do enjoy the soft boot, but there is a place and I do see this, the, the hard boot more in the spring conditions for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, especially when you're, you know, trying to get up higher, yeah. you know, every every ounce that you can cut back counts and every calorie that you can save by having a more efficient stride because it it, it really is a difference honestly like you don't work near as hard when you're towing with a hard boot versus a soft boot you know yeah. um but well even even on the traverse as well if, if if it's not deep skin track and you're going on to this hard pack sun beaten you know you you can have more you can have an easier glide less you know, less ankle pain with hard boots. Yeah. And I mean, one thing I've really noticed with them is I can always, I can push my skin track a little bit further, you know, like with the hard thing about soft boots is you kind of have to anticipate what you're going to need before you need it. Right. Like you kind of look ahead and you're like, okay, that's a little too steep to skin. I should take my board off now and put it on my backpack because you know, if you make it up to that point and then have to deal with it, you know, like having your spark blindings like flapping around and trying to get on your backpack, it can get hectic and become pretty dangerous sometimes too. Um, and then again with crampons, you know, because you're putting a universal strap crampon on it or, you know, if you have Jones boots or whatever, or Fitwells, you know, you have a semi-auto. But nonetheless, um, it's not – a quick easy thing like with my hard boots i have you know fully bailed cramp on it's super easy to get on there um and not to mention the boot itself is very rigid so if i skin up really really far and then all of a sudden it's sheer ice i can reach down and be out of my binding with one single click you know Mm -hmm. and have Mm -hmm. a stiff enough boot to be able to drive into the the slope and kick out it exactly and then you know once i get the skis off they're nice and sleek it's easy to just throw a valet strap around them put them over my shoulder or get them onto my backpack if i have to you don't have those sparks flapping around so i just find that i can kind of like you know milk every level of efficiency for like as much as it's worth you know skin a little bit farther um you know not put crampons on in situations where i'd have to put crampons on in soft boot um so, so yeah, it's, it makes a lot of sense for those spring missions when you are dealing with, you know, more firm conditions and getting up further into the mountains and just, you know, more dangerous slopes, you know, generally. And, mm-hmm. but that said, there's, you know, there are a lot of the heartbeat riders that do ride it year round. Like, you know, you look at the footage that Chad Otterstrom has been shooting over the last couple right. of years and his like heartbeat kit, like you can do cab fives on like a heartbeat <laughs> kit. If well, he can. God, I don't know about you know, me. But, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but nonetheless, you know, you can you can jump. You know, you can ride pow, whatever. Um, he's he's I, proving that it is possible for sure. Yeah, and yeah. there's other riders that are are doing that too. You know, I mean, um, there there I, I feel like there was this misconception that like hard boots, you know, you kind of rid rode very like rigid and. Um, it, it didn't look the same, you know, but I think, I think there are some people that are really challenging that, yeah. you know, um, Joey Vosberg is definitely one. We watched his videos and, and it's like, Oh man, that guy just floats. Yeah, he's got fucking style, you know, An- oh, another one, uh, my buddy, Zach Mills. I don't know if you've ever paid attention to his stuff. Yeah. He, he did that Zabardass, um, movie project right, uh, right. with Tomas Delfino, phenomenal writer, you know? Um, and, Every time I go out riding with him, I'm like, man, I wish I had his style. And, you know, he's been on hard boots for six, seven years now, you know. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think I think we're definitely noticing a shift. And you know, with with John coming out with his new boot, the slipper, I mean, I think we're only going to see more and more of that. You know, and more and more people yeah. kind of show up to the table and bring. Mm-hmm new elements of style and kind of like hopefully squash all the, um, the, uh, I, I don't know the, the, the rumors are just like the, the, um, stereotypes, well, the you misconceptions know? of what it really come brings to the table. I think Phantom's got a really good, um, thing going with John's <clears throat> aerospace, aerospace engineering. That what he has? I don't know if that's sure. What it is. Yeah. I don't know for sure. Yeah, exactly. But he's, he's working on that, that whole, you know, Durate like long duration space flight program. So I think yeah. he's got access to a lot of compositions and different materials, and his mind's way different than everybody else's. It's so mind blowing how all these, uh, you know, how the best, <laughs> the best splitboard bindings out there in the market are all these just wickedly brilliant engineers behind them. And oh, for sure. It's yeah, it's just insane. I mean, will will. I mean, Will over at yeah. Spark, he's another mad scientist. And the brothers at Caricorum. I mean, just insane. <laughs> yeah, man. It's madness. Yeah. It's great yeah, madness. Everyone's it's really good. It's fucking awesome pushing the sport to a whole yeah. level. Hey, so let's uh, – I'm kind of curious. Um, what's in your backpack when you go out into the backcountry? I mean, aside from the essentials, right, like your AVI gear and and I'm kind of curious what kind of beacon you prefer. Like is do you so, do you mind talking about the brand of beacon that yeah. you like to use and Yeah, no. Um I over the last couple of years have been using the uh tracker T three. Okay, um, yeah. The the one that I makes really all the Star like, Trek noises. Yeah, the <laughs> video game in your pocket. <laughs> That's right. Um so I really like that beacon because it's very low profile, it's very easy to use, user friendly, kind of intuitive. Yeah. Um the biggest thing for me, because I'm usually wearing that chest harness, is I keep my beacon in my pocket, so I need something low profile for that. Um, so, you know, that's kind of just the perfect beacon for that. Um, and, yeah, I usually just keep it in my right pocket. Um, like your jacket pocket? Uh, no, my pant pocket. Okay, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it's something that, you know, some – the narrative is kind of moving towards like some people are doing it, especially um, I know guides are really digging that for their clients. You know, it's a lot easier to like get someone's beacon out to switch it to search mode or whatever, if it's in your pocket and the same idea for yourself, right? If you're flustered, the last thing you want to do is be like unzipping all your jackets yeah. to like get down that, to your base layer. Well, I That's, love um, I love the the manufacturers who are designing like for example for designing bibs with specific pockets for the beads. Yeah, with right? like the stitch in. Yeah, um, yeah. you know harness. I know because now, now that you say that, my first uh, trip on a cat track, cat, cat skiing, you know, they made us wear this fucking big harness under your jacket and all under your gear, and it's like, yeah, it's a pain in the ass. Like when shit hits the fan. Last thing you want to be doing is trying to get your gloves off and trying to get this little zipper and zip it and get into your coat and for sure, you know. For sure. And you know, you're at the top of the slide path or whatever where yeah. where you lost your buddy and then you know you unzip all these jackets and you have your transceiver out and then you start dropping in and all your jackets are still opening, yeah. you know, open. So you're like collecting all the snow. And Lord knows, like, once you get down there and rescue your friend, how long you're going to be sitting around, you know, like, the last thing you need is 
a bunch of moisture, you know, on your base layer to the point that all of a sudden you have two victims or whatever, maybe yeah. like if you end up getting, you know, really cold. And so it's, it, I like having it in my pocket. Yeah. It, it just makes sense for there's me. A, there's um, a, I've had some of the pants that yeah. have, I, I had a pair of BD pants that had that buckle with the harness and whatnot. It ended up like wearing a hole in the laminate uh, where the buckle was. So honestly, I just like, I just rock whatever pants, even the like the ones that don't have that harness. I, I get why they design that, but I feel like, you know, if you're in a slide that's so bad that your pants get ripped off of you, like chances are you have bigger issues than like the <laughs> fact that your beacon's not with you anymore. You know, yeah, like you're naked. Pretty <laughs> traumatic. <laughs> like, yeah, like you probably bash well, it's um, a, it's at that a, point. It's a really good point because it's probably something that's heavily overlooked in the industry or it's not the industry, in the sport uh, uh, by the users is, okay, all right, we talked about it before. Folks, you get your gear, then you get your training, and then we yeah. talked about practicing transitions, et cetera, et cetera. But the other practice that needs to happen is, you know, beacon searches um, and uh, and beacon deployment, right? Mm-hmm. And and getting that stuff out and being efficient with that. I mean, it's just it's so much. It's so important because those that time is so precious when somebody's buried, right? I mean, your time is extremely Seconds feel limited. Like For sure, and I mean, it's just like some. I mean, there's a lot of skills like that. Avalanche, um, you know, burials are one. Like uh, crevasse rescue is one. Like. The last thing you want to do when something happens is like trying to recall what it is you have to do, right? So, like, you've got to train it enough that it becomes muscle memory, right? So, um, regardless of your skill level, I mean, generally, I like to kick off my winters, you know, by, yeah, doing a couple test burials. Um, And, you know, if you go out skiing for the day and conditions aren't that great, or like maybe it's a really dangerous day and like you're kind of, um, unsure of what you can ski, like that's a perfect opportunity to like go out and, you know, mess around with some beacons. Um, lots of resorts have beacon parks now, you know, where you can go out and, um, yeah, test your gear. So, so yeah, just getting your system dialed and, you know, just knowing that like there's a lot of different ways to skin a cat or whatever, you know, like you can keep your beacon in your pocket or on your chest harness, like one's not more right than the other it's just that's a system that i know how to use and that's a system i've practiced with so it's what you know i i like to do so uh, whatever you end up with you know yeah just practice it practice is the most important part what are good for you for snacks oh man um you know i i'm like a sugar fiend for sure that's like that's my my language roger that roger that yeah yeah, but unfortunately, on like the longer missions, you kind of end up bonking, you know. So like, I made the mistake it's once. A moderation of, like, thing, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a story. So like, one time, I I like discovered. Have you ever seen like the Reese's bars? Like rather than the cups. It's, oh like, a full, yeah. Like Hershey bar. Oh yeah. And it's like fucking <laughs> a clunker. It's like mm-hmm. you know a pound or something. So I like you know got turned on to those things and i looked at it and it's like you know 160 calories per ounce or something and there's like this rule or whatever for like you know pct hikers or whatever um, they're always looking all, for food over. okay so i'm i'm a <laughs> i'm an appalachian trail through hiker 
And uh, yeah. when I did through hike, I was all about the sugar and cookies were my jam, man. It was For just sure. like, I mean, everything's yeah. got to be over a hundred calories. Fat pounds, and sugar, right? fat and sugar, a... fat and sugar. Because I started, <laughs> I started that two thousand mile track at a buck eighty five, and <laughs> the number of calories I consumed in a day were out fucking rageous. And at yeah. the end of that hike, I was a buck fifty five. So I'm like, yeah. and I am, I am surprised I'm not a diabetic with the amount of sugar that I consumed in yeah, my but life. You burned it off. That's true. I did burn it off. I mean, I didn't burn it off. It was, it was just <laughs> madness. But, but yeah, I, and I'm the same way when I go backcountry. I like my gummy bears. I like my chocolate bars. I like my cookies. I like my PBJ. At the same time, when it comes to the real fuel that goes into the body, I like the good stuff too. You know, like For sure. I, I like my cheese. I like my meat. I like my. I'm not a big sandwich guy. Sandwiches are a pain in the ass, and they take a lot of abuse in your pack. She's um, one of the one of the early guys that we interviewed. Um, Matt Haynes, who's a guide, he's a tail guide and a caretaker for Kapow. He, uh, he put it really good. I think it was Matt. I'm pretty sure it was Matt. He said, he's like, I love stuff that can just be abused and get smushed in my pack. Cause that's usually what's going to end up happening with it anyways. <laughs> you know? So I'm like, I'm down. Well, you know, that. if you're, if you're like anti sandwich, it sounds like you would really get along well in Europe. Like there, it was funny. I was like, we were doing our story on the Charlet brothers up there and we were out with them and Vivian Boucher, he's like a badass steep skier dude. And they just get a first descent. We watch it in a fucking hair raising and they come down and literally every single one of them whips out. Everyone has like a baguette, like cheese and sausage. (laughs) And we just have like this big picnic, you know? Um, the but charcuterie, like the charcuterie lunch is yeah, fucking, fucking bomber, man. Awesome. And you know what? You know what's the best the thing to serve that thing on is your shovel blade. You take oh, your shovel yeah. blade out and you plant it in the snow. It creates a little pocket, locks right in there, and then you just put all that stuff right on there. Oh. Another shout out to my buddy Drew Rogers. That's his inception. I'll give it to him, man. But it works really bomber for that, man. It's fucking great. Sweet. Well, yeah. Then the the open face sandwich. You know, that's that's the way to do it. So yeah, I'm not big into the bread part, but uh, but yeah, like, I like I'm not, my bread. I don't. I don't need. <laughs> I'm not that guy who needs a big heavy meal with me out in the backcountry. I just like to nosh. I, I like nuts. I do. Nuts is another thing that I really like. I really like chomping on nuts as I'm skinning up the track and. And, I'm and leaving I'm, that one alone. <laughs> I know you're just dying <laughs> to fucking jump on that. <laughs> Not on your nuts. I'm talking about the food. <laughs> um. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll see. So this year, um, I ended up like I've I've been getting really into gardening and farming and I stuff. And I've been doing lots of dried fruit, so I'm like super stocked up for this winter. We also had like this new place I moved into, we, we had these hazel bushes out front. So I've got like oh, a yeah. paper, like a shopping bag filled with hazelnuts. So, nice. um, I've Dude, got you, some nuts. You'd some love my fruit. You'd love my mother-in-law's spread. She's in, uh, she's, she lives in the Kootenays. My wife's from the Kootenays and my mother-in-law lives in the South Slocan Valley and she's, uh, totally hipped out in this town called Winlaw. And um, she's got this big spread, and her garden is just outrageous. The amount of stuff that's growing in that garden is just phenomenal. I love stopping there because she just loads me up with all the good fresh veggies and and fruit. And oh, she's man. got hazelnut trees in her backyard as well. 
It's fun, man. I, I've been really into it. It's crazy. Like, I mean, just once you start eating like that, you realize, you know, like today, my girlfriend and I, we were kind of doing a bunch of projects. We were helping a neighbor with painting, you know, got really hungry. We like put a frozen pizza in the, the, the oven or whatever. And afterwards, you know, we each feel just like so sick. Like, oh, God. It's <laughs> like you just realize like how, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, things that you're used to before like really right. yep. you know aren't probably the healthiest option you when know like you, we hit the road and we yep. eat you know food we used to and we're like oh god like this feels kind of raw you know <laughs> i know it's crazy when you eat clean and then you hit like i don't know for me man i <coughs> excuse me i used to i used to live on mcdonald's i think for a while there in my life and then now i just I abhor it. I can't. Yeah. I can't touch it. And I and, get sucked in. And the it snow, maybe happens it. twice a year tops for me. Like I might have a quarter pounder with cheese maybe two times a year, and it's usually because it's a road trip decision. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, uh, the road trips they're they're hard. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to stay away from it. My 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 weakness for that's the Taco Bell. You know, uh, we don't have Taco oh, Bell man. around here, yeah, man. I love Taco yeah, Bell. Taco Bell is actually Canadian. really good. It's actually. I think in in the realm of of fast food, Taco Bell's ranked up there as one of the healthier fast food meals you yeah, can have, man. and you it's so cheap. With what? With its grade D fucking meat? It's so cheap. Come man. on. Yeah, you can walk in there with five bucks and walk out with diarrhea for sure. <laughs> diarrhea <laughs> for sure. Diarrhea all fucking. I, I'm all about what you're saying about food because being a type two diabetic, I, I you know I love my pizza, but I'll eat it and I could eat four pizzas, pizzas, and I'd be still hungry. Because there's nothing yeah. to it, but yet give me a bowl yeah. of you know of salad with some string beans and some zucchini, and I'm freaking stuffed because the body's oh, getting sure. what it wants, right? Yeah. But then again, with with that stuff, you know, it's such clean burning fuel that I find I have to eat more through the day. You yes. know, like yes. you can't just have like three meals; you got to have like I'll constantly be kind of yeah, exactly. So so it's hard, you know. I got mad props for you know folks like Wiggles that are like you know, vegetarian or like really mostly vegan and like oh, yeah. doing giant days like that. I mean, you really got to pay attention, you know, and, and know your shit to, yeah. to get what you need. But nuts. <laughs> yeah. Nuts. That's man. That's how you get your protein. And like, yeah, I agree, uh, key rice and beans too. You know, that's, yes. that's yeah. one yeah, of yeah, my yeah, favorites yeah. for sure. You need a cold uh, doesn't really matter. Quinoa as well. You know, I went on, I went on a scuba dri- scuba diving trip years ago. Uh, geez, almost 20 years ago now. Actually, Just a couple of years ago. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, um, it was really interesting because it was this multifaceted trip that I went on. It was in Palau, which is on the Philippine Sea, and it was a pretty ideal trip. But so I met my uh, the the morning of the first day there. The dude who picked us up at the hotel was the equivalent of like an ACMG guide, right? And buddy shows up and he's total total dive bum, right? Long hair, skippied out, and he's got just his shorts on. And he drives up in the van. He picks us up, and we're driving down to the dock. and And what he's got is in the truck. He's got rolled up in uh in like plastic wrap or just what looks like a couple burritos right but they're essentially they were just burritos but it was like breakfast lunch dinner all in the same package it was just fish and rice and beans wrapped up in like a tortilla shell like it was just so like perfect everything in there right simple everything you need just kind of kind of fill the whole void for the day type of thing yeah and especially uh 
Do you guys ever make your beans from scratch, man? Oof, that is that is game changer. You know, I just did. It's funny that you say that because uh, I was at the store, bought this big bag, and first time I've ever done it, bought this big bag of dried chickpeas, and then brought them home and just, just trying to figure out. Like I'd never done it before. I'd never used, you know. And I've never done chickpeas. My my go to is like the pinto or the black beans, but um, you know. Yeah, it's it's pretty easy. Like especially if my my girlfriend turned me on to the the instant pot. It's like kind of the new the new craze, right? You know, yeah. it's like this um, pressure cooker. But yep, yep. you know, you can put dry beans in it. You don't even have to pre soak them or anything. You've got you know fresh beans 30, 40 minutes later. Um, but it's great. You can just load it up with onions and garlic. And my favorite thing is to do that and then refry them. So you like blend it all and then you pan fry more onion and garlic and bay leaf and stuff and toss them in there and just cook the water off of it, you know, until it gets real thick. Oh, it's so good. Dude, thanks um, for the inspiration on that. You know, it's funny, man, because we were talking to Wiggles and we were talking about we got really kind of deep for a little bit on like kind of like we are now on the food pattern because dude food's important <laughs> it is it is so important and 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 i think it's a i think it's a good part of the discussion really and that's what we're all here for is to discuss what's good for splitboarding and backcountry and um wiggles was just all about the food man he's like big and we're like dude you need to write a book like totally. you really need to get yeah, in there I, and I write a book the, about i like that uh that that podcast, like you telling telling to read a cookbook, I think that would be pretty sweet. <laughs> <laughs> he wants to get uh, if we do a magazine uh, or a zine, as they call them, easy, easy, yeah. Do they they even exist oh, yeah. anymore? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'd have one on our page. We're gonna have we have him putting in some uh, recipes of the month type thing in there. We'll I love see. it. We'll see. He's a good dude. <laughs> yeah, well, is. dude, this has been a blast, Ryan, yeah, man. I mean, like a, so we're good. we're well over uh I think we're just two approaching 2 hours here minutes. that we're actually recording podcast-wise here. So, it's been awesome, man. I mean, I know there's a ton more we can talk about. We'd love to revisit it as a at a later date and get on it a little yeah. more. That would be killer. Yeah, so, before we before we sign you off and let you go is um how how can people get in touch with you? How can they learn more about Ryan Irvin? Yeah, um, I've got a website, ryanirvinphoto.com. Um, so that's kind of got some of my portfolio on there, along with some contact info. Um, I'm pretty good at responding on Instagram as well, at ryanirvinphoto. Um, and yeah, I, I'm super stoked to like talk to anyone that, um, you know, it has questions. Like it's kind of been one of those things that like, you know, from the very start, the split board community has always been really small and supportive. And I'm always super stoked, especially when people, you know, come to me with questions like about hard boots or, you know, how, how to, um, how to further their own knowledge. And so, so yeah, if anyone out there wants to chat, I'm, I'm all ears. So that's where you can find me. <laughs> Cool, cool. Yeah, because uh, I'm sure people have a lot of questions and might drop stuff there. And um, yeah, yeah. Look for more of that information in the show notes, folks. You can for find sure. it there. Absolutely. Cool, dude. Thank, thank you, you so. so much. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Really, really appreciate it. It was great. Yeah, it was. It was a great talk. I, I look forward to hearing hearing more of your guys's podcast. So far, the 
Oh, there the, will be the, more. Uh, the cast list has been just <laughs> there's, phenomenal. There's so. fucking lots more. It's it. This has been a blast. We've, oh, we've been having a lot of fun. It's so been a lot humble. of work at the same time, but it's been a labor of love, really, to for the most part. So, well, for oh, the yeah. all part, for the whole part. <laughs> so, well, yeah, get them all in now, you know, so you guys can take some time off this winter. And, that you know, is get, get, it, get out there and do some splitboards. No, there's no we time We need to get off, some more dark starts in, but we definitely sure. got to get some dark starts in. Uh, yeah. Yeah. cool man thanks again Ryan yeah and take care and yeah. cheers soon, buddy man. later bud hey everyone thanks for listening and a special thanks to Ryan for taking the time to talk with us as always you can learn more about Ryan in the show notes if you're not already Please be sure to follow us on Instagram at darkstarts.podcast to find out when our next episodes are dropping and to share your awesome pics and vids. Make sure you listen to our next episode where we talk with J.P. Martin, builder of the original Ultra Natural course for Travis Rice out at Baldface Lodge. We want to give a special shout out to Scott Martin at Groundswell Marketing Podcast and Pat Cornway for helping to make all of this happen.